Please remain standing for the reading of the word. It's good to see you in the house of the Lord today. You may remain standing as we read the scriptures. We welcome you to the early service at Park City's Presbyterian Church. We're glad you're here. Be sure and sign the book, whether you're a visitor or a member. And pay attention in your bulletin to all the many activities that are lining up for the summer. This really kind of begins our summer schedule this week. And youth are gone. The Vacation Bible School's coming. This is a big, big week for us here at PCPC. And we're glad you're all here to participate. Let's look at the scriptures now, about a half a dozen verses, centering around chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. And moving to the end of the chapter. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We begin a new series of studies for the summer. We'll be running about 13 weeks. And today's passages of scripture kind of introduce and frame the discussion. You'll see that it centers around chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, we're not exactly sure who might have been the author, but the writer nevertheless displays a few things. One is a very excellent writing in the Greek language, but also a profound knowledge of the Old Testament. Not just the Old Testament history of God's people, but also of the meaning of the rituals of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. That's why it leads me to believe that the author of this book was probably a Levitical priest, someone who had studied these things and had practiced in these things for a lifetime. The more conservative view, which I hold, is that the book was written before 70 AD and the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. I think it is obvious that if the temple had been destroyed and Jerusalem had fallen, and this was post 
70 AD that the writer would have mentioned it somewhere in the book. Because the whole point of the book is how everything that Israel had in the past, commanded by Moses, instituted by Moses and Aaron, and practiced for hundreds of years, all of that pointed forward to the coming of Christ. And he begins to show in the very first of this book that God spoke in the past, at various times, and in all sorts of ways to the fathers by the prophets. Isn't that a good summary of Old Testament literature? Excellent summary. But, he says, in these last days, in these days of fulfillment, in these latter days, in these last days, God has spoken to us by one who is a son. And he goes into several chapters describing the most uplifting and incredibly descriptive passage concerning the nature of Christ, his divine nature, his human nature, his exalted nature, and he goes through quite a bit of trouble to show us how Christ fulfilled all the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. How that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and turtle doves that were sacrificed by the thousands over the centuries, the blood of those animals could not avail or atone for the sin of one person, one time. But Christ, by His sacrifice, as both the victim, the lamb slain, and the high priest making and presenting the sacrificial offering, Christ, by His offering, the shedding of His blood upon the cross, atoned for all the sins. The problem most scholars think behind the writing of this letter was that a lot of those people who had first trusted in Christ and had found some root in the gospel were beginning because of persecutions and because of privations and because of uh, starvation in some cases and the diaspora and all the different things that might be happening there in the early church, some were beginning to loosen their faith. It was coming unmoored, untied. They were beginning to drift. They were beginning to turn back. And so he points them to the Old Testament example of God's people in the wilderness, how that they had failed in their faith. And so the thrust of the passage we'll be looking at this summer is to show to these believers by Old Testament example, faith and faith's process and faith's outcome 
And he frames it up here. It's unfortunate in this case that we have chapter divisions in the text because, you know, this letter was written and some believe it was a discourse. It was an exhortation. It might have been a very lengthy sermon that was delivered rather consistently in the early synagogues, which of course, as they believed in Christ, these synagogues became churches among the believers. And some say that this was not so much a letter, although it has epistolary uh, features to it that would let us know it is a letter, but it was a sermon preached, an exposition. And either if it was either one of those, it certainly was a very fine treatise on the subject. And there's a sense in which it's kind of unfortunate that it's been broken up by chapter divisions because it has a flow to it that the chapter divisions sometimes interfere. And here we see it. Chapter 11 hangs on the last verse of chapter 10. And it moves us through this long chapter 11, moves us to the conclusion of chapter 12, verses one and two, as you've seen, as we read. Let me just point that out to you. Chapter 10, the very last verse is verse 39. The writer exhorts him, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. The word shrink back is the word for apostasy. We are not those that have moved back or moved away from, who stand away from shrinking back, following Christ further and further afar, moving away from a strong confession, the confession of a good faith, the confession of a strong affirmation of faith, but are beginning to have second thoughts, doubts, fears, reluctancies, confusions, misgivings. <laughs> Do any of those things ever apply to us in our Christian walk? Do we ever have misgivings, doubts? Are there large stretches of time when there's a barrenness to our faith. There's a dusty powder dry stretch to our faith. We scarcely believe. We scarcely understand. We live in a time sometimes of backsliding with sin in our life. We live sometimes just a failure to use the means of grace, the study of the scriptures, the disciplines of prayer and meditation, the attending upon the teaching of the Word of God, the participation in the supper, and all those other things that the Lord uses to pull us near, we draw back, we move away from. Well, the affirmation of the writer is we're not like that. We don't have to be like that. We're not those people that move away and fall back and, and begin to put some distance between us and Christ. Not so. In fact, we are those that, as he will say in the 12th chapter, we are those that pursue, that move close to, that follow close upon the heels and in the footsteps of Christ. As he is, as it said there, our file leader. He leads the parade of the faithful. He's the ultimate object. He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. One more serious word in the scriptures. We find them there all the time. Sometimes it's easy to read over them. But this is a matter of life and death, spiritually speaking. 
Salvation, our salvation is by faith. What is the character of that faith? What's the manifestation of that faith? How do we know we are faithful? How do we know we are in the faith? And the working out of this comes with some fear and trembling. The working out of our salvation. And it's because there is a destructive end to a false faith, to a failed faith. There is a perishing as we saw last week. But we're not, we're not like that. And here's some of the reasons why. But we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he begins to talk about those that did have faith and whose souls were preserved. And chapter 11, as most of you are very familiar, is a hall of fame of the faithful. It's a roll call of faith. And that's what we'll be doing this particular um, summer is our pastors uh, will be senior pastors, associate pastors, assistant pastors, we'll all be sharing in taking different ones of these characters and talking about the nature of their struggle and their trial and the nature of their faith. And we'll be encouraged in that because the truth is that uh, not all these characters were just wonderful, wonderful saints. You'll see the work of God's grace in their lives. You'll see their failings. You'll see their shortcomings, their fallings. In fact, sometimes you'll scratch your head when you read what the writer of Hebrews says about their life characteristic. And if you compare it to the actual narrative in the Old Testament of the way they live, you'll go, what? I, I see some disconnects in there. It's not unusual to have a roll call like this. In the ancient literature, uh, there's often a list made of predecessors. Uh, the book of Sirach, some of the extra canonical books of the Old Testament era. The Praise of the Elders. In 1 Maccabees chapter 2, I guess I could call that 1 Maccabees. In 1 Maccabees, Matthias, who is the father of Judas Maccabees, the founder of the Hasmanian dynasty, which during that intertestinal period rallied Israel to some degree of independence from the foreign oppressors. He has a roll call in his um, litany there of Abraham, Phineas, Joshua, Caleb, David, Elijah, the three Hebrew children, and Daniel. And then in 4th Maccabees, the mother of the seven martyred brothers has a, an account of their faithful endurance. And the one that impresses me the most is as the mother of the seventh, her seventh son, who is now faced with the challenge of whether or not he will stand for his faith and suffer martyrdom. The mother exhorts him to stand and to even if he's martyred, can you imagine a mother saying that to her child? Her seventh son having lost the others? 
And part of her exhortation is, you will be with your brothers. You will stand with your brothers every step of the way. And it was not unusual in the Stoic literature of the early centuries to have a virtue, whatever the virtue was, to be illustrated by a personality of history. And that's really what the writer's doing here. He's bringing up particular people who have given evidence of their faith. And these are they that it talks about. He says in verse two of chapter 11, for by it, that is by faith, the people of old, it's literally the word presbyteros, it's the word Presbyterian, <laughs> it's, it's the word elder. It means the older generations and the people of the founders and the uh, patriarchs of the family. A very similar group is named at the very beginning in chapter one, verse one, when he talks about the fathers. In other words, there's a roll call of faith and these are our predecessors, our ancestors. This is our lineage, this is our heritage. Our heritage is a faith of those that believed in the one true God going all the way back to Adam and Abel will be the first example that he gives. These are those who stood by. Then if we move through those names quickly and get to chapter 12, or the end of this chapter says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. My goodness, can you imagine that? Living lives that we'll see as we look at each one. I'm tempted to use illustrations, but we'll save those for the, for the messages as we go along. But all of these men, Moses, Abraham, Noah, Abel, Enoch, did not get what they actually had been promised. Now they received a lot of things from the Lord, but they never got the promise in their lifetime. They never saw it in its fulfillment since God had provided something better for us. In other words, God was building up to something better, actually someone better, the better priest, the better king, the better prophet, the better patriarch, one who is the author and the finisher, the file leader, the founder, of our faith and the one who is the completer, the perfecter of our faith and that is Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a sense in which they never saw Christ, but they lived in faith. And one of the things that we're gonna try to do as, as pastors and I'll be doing uh, almost all of the eight o'clock services, the other pastors will do the other two, is we wanna show what what held this particular patriarch to his constant and steadfast faith in the Lord in spite of all of this cloudiness and this shadows and types and, and all? What made them stay? And what is the reward for their faith? The end reward, of course, is Christ. Because apart from us, the Bible says, those of us who are in Christ, they, the patriarchs, share the same blessing. We get what Abraham was promised. Abraham didn't get it. 
until Christ. And we do. And that puts the spotlight where it needs to be. Verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1 says, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. The word cloud often in Scripture refers to a host of people. In fact, it's a host of people that is so thick and so dense that it appears to be a cloud. That references several times in the Scripture. In fact, the Bible says when the Lord comes with clouds of glory, it may not be the cirrus and the cumulus clouds and the things that we're used to. It may be the great host of heaven that return with the Lord. And this cloud is the picture here of a stadium, a first century Roman stadium filled with people, spectators watching, watching us. <laughs> it's our turn in the arena. It's our time to be on the field. This is the day of our life. It's the day of our testing. It's the day of our proving the faith. They're the just men whose souls have been made perfect, but now they're watching us. And since we are on the track, in the arena, in the stadium, and all these fathers and predecessors are watching, we have a race to run. And so that's the image here. He encourages us to lay aside every weight. It's translated in the Vulgate, the impedimenta, the impediments, the things that keep us from being weighted down, that, that weight us down and keep us from being free to run the race. We are exhorted. And here's the exhortation that we've been looking for now for a chapter and a half. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me just make one mention here of um, the parallelism that is found in 11.1. That's kind of the central text of our, of our message. And let me just comment on that. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's a parallel statement saying almost the same thing, but not exactly. The word that is translated assurance is the word for substance. In other words, that's the foundation. This is not a definition of faith. There, there's a lot of things that go into faith. There's a knowledge element, a learning element. There's a cognitive element to faith. Believing involves believing something, some objective content. Trusting is an element of faith. It means placing a reliance upon something or someone or something that someone has done. It also involves an element of obedience. We saw that when we went through James some time back, that we cannot get away from the obedient element of faith. So this is not, even though it says now faith is, this is not the summary 
definition of faith, no more than the statement John makes in his letter when he says God is love. God is certainly love, but that's not the whole picture of the attributes of God. So this is an aspect of faith that he's trying to drive home. And it is that faith is that substance. It is that foundation. It's the basis, the prop, the support. It's more in the objective way of thinking about it. It is, if I were to use an illustration of if I had behind me a chair and I'd been assured by someone's word that there was a chair there and I simply stepped back and sat down in the chair. The chair is what's going to hold me. Not my faith, not my belief, not my commitment to it. It's going to, the chair has got to be there. If the chair is that not there, my faith is in vain. There's a substance, I like the old authorized version, the substance of things hoped for. Then the other word that's used in parallel is the word conviction. It's the evidence. It's the demonstration. It's the proof that is supported by reason and supported by the action that's taken. My, this is subjective. Now my sitting down on the chair that is there is the evidence, the proof that it's there. Because I sit in the chair, I don't fall on the floor. And that's what we're going to see in these examples of faith. That there was a sheer, mere trust, confidence, belief in God, in His Word, in His promises, and especially the promise of the coming Christ. But behind it all and under it all was the actual accomplishment and work of God himself in providing the Christ and giving them the salvation, having him be all sufficient. How does that faith work out in our lives? God is faithful, but he calls upon us to believe his faithfulness. Father, we ask that as we come to this study this summer that you will increase our vision that we may walk by faith and not by sight, that the eyes of faith may be opened and may be strengthened, that our horizons may be broadened and that our experience, Lord, deepened. Help us, Father, in our faith, weak and feeble, halting though we may be. We ask, Lord, that you will come and work within our hearts as week by week we look at these great men and women of the ancient day and realize, oh Lord, that you are the same today as you were then. And you call us to faith and to faithfulness because you, oh Lord, are faithful in the giving of your son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior in whose name we pray. Amen.